You are listening to the Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series, brought to you weekly by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program. You can find podcasts and video clips of these lectures online at edcorner.stanford.edu. Now, it brings me uh, great pleasure to introduce our last guest of the quarter. He is an entrepreneur. He's a global leader. And he's actually an alum of one of my favorite places on earth. Um, Ken is the leader of Silicon Valley Bank. And as you may know by looking at his bio, you all can read faster than I can talk. Ken Wilcox is different from a lot of the leaders that we have come in in that he is a German scholar. He studied that as an undergraduate, got a PhD in German studies, and then got a Harvard MBA, and then did a bunch of stuff, and then joined Silicon Valley Bank in the East to lead their Eastern operations, and then came West where he's been at the helm of this really great Silicon Valley financial institution. Now, how many of you have heard of Silicon Valley Bank before today? Raise your hand. Has anybody actually done business with Silicon Valley Bank? Maybe you're in a startup that has uh, worked with them. Anybody? Yes, at least a couple of people in the audience. Well, SVB took good care of my little startup back when we got started in 2000 and was a great help in those years. But I've known about the organization since I came to Silicon Valley in 1980 and then certainly since 1989 when it came back. It's a great financial institution, very entrepreneurial, very able to help entrepreneurs get started, get connected with VCs, get connected with attorneys, public accountants, help them to go global, all sorts of good things that most commercial banks don't know how to do. And Silicon Valley Bank is not just a commercial bank, it does some private equity work. Ken's gonna tell you a little bit more about that, I hope, as well as lessons from his career. Let's let me get off the stage and welcome Ken Wilcox, welcome. Thank you very much. I think what I'd like to do today is to talk a little bit about how I got where I am, and then a little bit about how Silicon Valley Bank got to where it is, and then I'd like to focus on two topics that I think are the most important. Those are strategy and culture. I believe that the most important things that a company can focus on are its strategy and its culture. I also think that if you had to pick between the two, that culture trumps strategy every time. I think that because if you have a great culture, your people will develop a strategy that will win. But if you don't have a good culture, even a winning strategy will not be useful. So a little bit about my background. As Tom said, somewhere in high school I took a wrong turn at an intersection near my house and ended up in Germany. <laughs> the problem with ending up in Germany is that if you spend enough time there in school, and I studied in Germany for five years, you end up with so many credits that you have no choice. You have to major in German. <laughs> if you major in German, you have no choice. You have to teach. And although I understand things may be different today, in my era, if you had to teach, you were poor. And if you were poor, you were disgruntled. <laughs> and if you're disgruntled, you quit. And that's what happened to me. I was at the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill, actually doing well, teaching German. Inflation was 12%. My raise was 2%. I lost 10% of my buying power every year. Within five years, I'd lost half of my buying power. 
I could no longer buy groceries. I went to the dean and I resigned effective the following June. In June, I had a yard sale. Prior to June, though, I began applying to business schools. Interestingly enough, the only one I didn't get into was Stanford. <laughs> I don't hold it against Stanford. Not the least. I went to Harvard. When I got to Harvard, I knew nobody. I was lonesome. I was substantially older than most students. One day, my wife, Ruth, still my wife, came to visit the Neiman Marcus class. She was in retailing at the Talbots. She wanted to see what Harvard Business School was like. I recognized immediately that she was roughly in my age group. I introduced myself. I asked her to lunch. She said no. <laughs> I got her telephone number from the person who'd invited her. I kept pursuing her. I'm still pursuing her. <laughs> but we have been married now for 25 years. When I graduated, actually, let me go back to the summer between the first and the second year in business school. If you were ever in business school, you know that that summer experience between the first and the second year is of utmost importance. Actually, very few people need the money, but there's a huge amount of prestige associated with getting a good job in that summer. I thought with my PhD in German, I would get a job easily. I found out soon that that was not the case. At Harvard in that era, we used to talk about being bulleted. Bulleted meant you got a bullet through your chest, which was another way of saying you just got refused on another job application. By April, I was the most bulleted person on campus. You could see through me. One night on the way to the library, I bumped into a classmate who said, are you going to the manufacturer's Hanover recruiting dinner tonight? I said, I didn't even know there was such a dinner. She said, why not go? And I said, a free dinner. So I left the library. I was tired of cases. I went to the manufacturer's Hanover recruiting dinner. I was rude. I spent the entire evening conversing with the woman who had asked me to go with her. At the end of the dinner, I was so desperate. Desperate people will go to great ends, will take great risks. I was so desperate at the end of that dinner, I walked up to the gentleman who was hosting the dinner, who had given a speech, and I said, you know, that was the most interesting speech I've heard all semester. And he said, I would like to hire you. <laughs> and that's how I became a banker. <laughs> Once I graduated, by the way, Ruth and I got married quickly. And once I graduated, we didn't have to either. And once I graduated, I realized that I was married to a New Englander. New Englanders don't transplant easily. I concluded that I was stuck in New England for the rest of my days. So I began looking for a job in banking, now that I was a banker. I found one at Shawmut, lending to technology companies. For 25 years, all I have done is lend money to venture back technology companies. I have the narrowest career of any CEO in the US banking system today. We have 8,000 banks in the United States. I'm the only person who's only done one thing for 25 years and over and beyond that, definitely the only person with a PhD in German. I will guarantee you of that. <laughs> After five years at Shawmut, I moved across the street to Bank of New England because they had a more significant market presence. I was at Bank of New England in January of 1990, 
as happy as a commercial banker could possibly be. I was doing what I love, helping entrepreneurs succeed. Life couldn't have been better. And then Walter Connolly, the CEO of the Bank of New England, announced the billion dollar loss, the largest loss in banking history in the United States at that point in time. Of course, numerous banks have sought to surpass that since then <laughs> and have succeeded. Immediately, my wife knew that the Bank of New England was coming to an end. I'm an eternal optimist. I kept telling Ruth, it's going to work. Don't worry about a thing. It's 140 years old. It's old and venerable. It cannot fall apart. Ruth was insistent. She made me swear that the next time a headhunter called that I would respond. I did. I met Peter French the next morning at 7 a.m. in an office where nobody could see me. It turned out that Peter French was looking for somebody for Brown Brothers Harriman. I don't know if you know Brown Brothers Harriman. You have to have at least a million dollar capital contribution to join that bank. <clears throat> he recognized immediately that I didn't have anywhere near a million dollars. He suggested that we talk anyway. I talked to him and he told me I should resign from, Silicon, from Bank of New England because Bank of New England was going to go down. The next morning I went to my boss at Bank of New England and I said, I think the bank is in the process of going down. Let's resign together. <laughs> I thought that he was going to throw me out on my ear. It turned out that two or three days prior to that, Roger Smith, the first CEO of Silicon Valley Bank, had called my boss, Alan, and asked if we would like to all resign together <laughs> and join Silicon Valley Bank. So as it turned out, though, Alan was tempted but not sold. Alan was a New Englander, still is had been at Bank of New England for 25 years. As I said, New Englanders don't move quickly. So for the next three months, Roger Smith, CEO of Silicon Valley Bank here in California, was pulling Allen out of the Bank of New England. I was on the inside pushing Allen out of the Bank of New England. And on April 2nd of 1990, I got Allen and Roger got Allen out of the bank. We both resigned within five minutes of each other. We took a couple of our friends with us. We moved out of the financial district into Wellesley, the Wellesley office park, and we set up shop. That was 18 years ago this April. For the first couple of years, everything went swimmingly. That was because every bank in Boston was in the same kind of trouble that the Bank of New England was in, and that was bad real estate loans. And the result was every bank in New England of any size was put under an order by the regulators. It turned out that we were the only people, little Silicon Valley Bank, this tiny no-name bank from the West Coast, at that point in time only seven years old, we were the only bank in New England that was lending money to anybody in 1990, 91, and 92, and into the fall of 1992. We were having such a good time that we didn't even notice that there was no competition. We were winning every single deal. We thought we were geniuses. <laughs> it wasn't until 
the other banks re-entered the market in the fall of 1992 that it suddenly dawned on us how we'd managed to win every single time. <laughs> we recovered quickly. Soon we learned how to compete. We continued to be successful and in 1997 my predecessor John Dean asked me if I would come west to become CEO. Now we still at that point in time had the problem of Ruth to deal with because remember Ruth's a New Englander so I went to Ruth and I told her that we had this opportunity to go to the west coast I could be CEO and it was going to be wonderful and that California was sunny <laughs> and beautiful and she said there is no way <laughs> that we are moving so forget it but I was perseverant just like I'd been seven years or nine years before when we uh, got married and I just kept talking to her about it within six months I got her to move and uh, she moved with our sons Nate and Noah to California kicking and screaming the whole way Ruth I think literally wept every day for six months and after a year she said, I love California. We're never going back. And today, I think sometimes, wouldn't it be nice to go back to New England? And she says, we're staying in California. So, so forget it. There's a lesson in this somehow. I don't know what it is. So that's me. Now about Silicon Valley Bank. Our mission in life at Silicon Valley Bank is helping entrepreneurs succeed. Almost every single thing that we do involves helping entrepreneurs succeed, fostering entrepreneurial activity. Over the years, we've built quite a product set so that we're engaged in a wide variety of activities, all geared toward helping entrepreneurs succeed. I'm not going to stick to these textbook terms for more than a couple of minutes, but they do have some use. I would like to describe to you, that was our mission, technically, helping entrepreneurs succeed. I'd like to tell you what our vision is. Our vision is providing, being the leading. There are six parts to this. Being the leading, that's number one. Provider of innovative. Innovative is number two. Financial services. Financial services is number three. To entrepreneurial companies, that's number four of all sizes, that's number five, worldwide, and that's number six. So when you think about those six things, that's pretty aspirational, don't you think? Leading, I mean, to be number one in anything is, is pretty aspirational. To be innovative is tough. Financial services isn't that tough. <laughs> Entrepreneurial activities or entrepreneurial companies, that's, I suppose, not that tough either. Although you'll see in a minute why it is. Of all sizes, think of that, companies of all sizes. Most companies start with us when they're one person in a business plan or two people in a business plan. And we keep companies until they eventually get bought. And that can be into the hundreds of millions of dollars in sales. All technology companies get bought in the end. In fact, um, that's probably the reason people start them, so they can sell them. And we keep them all the way until they're big and get sold. And then worldwide, that's the most inspirational part of all. To do something worldwide, that's very, very difficult. Today, we have 1,200 people. And actually, if you can include the people in India who are not employees but are uh, 
contractors, but who feel very much like employees, I think, um, that would be 1,300 people. They're spread across the United States and in four countries, China, India, Israel, and the UK. We have a wide array of products. If you read our 10K, you would, you, and you, you didn't see the name at the top, you might think it was Citicorps because our product set is so broad and so deep and so complex and sophisticated. We have 50% plus market share of all venture-backed companies in the United States in our portfolio. And the other 50% is shared by a wide variety of players. There's nobody with um, market share even remotely approaching ours. And we also bank more than half of the venture funds in the United States, meaning we provide banking services to more than half the venture funds in the United States. Um, we also, by the way, invest in more than half the venture funds in the United States. So we're deeply involved in this community, which is called, in some regards, Silicon Valley. But then Silicon Valley, as we all know, and this is probably trite at this point, but it's, it's more of a state of mind than it is a physical location. And there are Silicon Valleys across the country and then in other parts of the world. And we have, I would say, and if you want to get some sense of how big we are relative to others, there are 8,000 banks in the United States. Only the top 250 are big enough to pay much attention to. We're about the 100th largest um, by most standards. There are various ways you can measure banks. So we're about the 100th largest. I think of us as the littlest big bank or the biggest little bank in the United States. We're right on the cusp in a way. And I would also like to say one thing about our brand before I get into the things I really want to talk about, strategy and culture. One thing that we've been immensely successful, I believe, is brand recognition or building a brand that's recognized by others. And I'm amazed. It's recognized by others, I should say, in our community, in the world of venture-backed technology companies. Outside of that, nobody knows our name at all. But inside that community, which is a global community, it's not a Northern California phenomenon anymore. It's not a US phenomenon anymore. The world of venture-backed companies, venture-backed technology companies, is a global world. It's a global community. And everywhere in the world that we go, people recognize our name. It's, it's um, just astounding to me. And I'll tell you a quick story. A couple of years ago, I was in India. It was the middle of the night, because if you've ever been to India, you know that when you fly back, you have to fly out of India in the middle of the night. And that's not because of India, by the way. That's because of us, because it takes so long to get here, and we don't let planes arrive in the middle of the night. So to avoid arriving here in the middle of the night, you've got to leave in the middle of the night in India. It was in Delhi. There were about a million people at the airport. I was really anxious because it was... I was worried that I was actually going to get out on a flight, and um, airports confused me anyway. I got inside the airport, and I got in this immense line with all sorts of people pushing big carts with huge amounts of baggage. And you could imagine, I was kept looking at my watch, plane's going to take off in 45 minutes, so am I even going to get to the front of the line in 45 minutes? I was nervous. There were two Indian guys, obviously Indian, you know, standing in front of me, and they kept looking at me and whispering and looking at me and whispering. And finally, they broke up. One of them walked up to me. He said, you know, you're from Silicon Valley Bank, aren't you? 
And I thought, my God. I said, how did you know? He said, well, it's written on your briefcase. <laughs> but then, the story is actually uh, much more profound. And that is that um, he said, it turned out he was the CEO of one of our portfolios in Boston. And he knew all kinds of people that I knew. Wherever I go, I talk about the same companies, the same technologies, the same people, globally. This is a global community in which we operate. I can't emphasize that enough. Now, just a word about our strategy over time before I get to our strategy today. And I'm going to end on the grand finale, the most important thing of all, culture. Is remember, at least in my view, culture trumps all else. But I want to talk about strategy now, and I'm going to begin with the history of our strategy. One way of, there are all sorts of ways to describe history. Um, and I'm going to take a particular cut. I want to describe history in terms of what we do with excess deposits. Now that may sound bizarre to you because you probably haven't spent that much time thinking about excess deposits lately. But if you're me, this is a big concern because technology companies in the aggregate as a group deposit about seven times what they borrow. This has been true throughout my 25 years of working with them. So the problem from a commercial banking point of view is and maybe you don't know how commercial banks work because most people don't spend that much time thinking about it. But it works like this. We have depositors and we have borrowers. And so we take deposits from people and then we take that money and we lend it to other people. Now for some of you that may seem pretty obvious. For others of you that may be you know, sort of a great insight. Because when you drop your money off at the bank, I'm not sure you know what they do with it. They actually take it and they lend it to somebody else. And that's what we do. What's interesting about our bank is we work with venture-backed technology companies. They deposit seven times, as a group, not individually, but as a group, they deposit seven times as much as they borrow. So can you imagine what a, what, what a joy that is? As every other bank is looking for deposits, they're dying to get their hands on deposits. We got tons of them. Can you imagine what a problem that is? Because you've got to do something with them. You can't just sit on them. You've got to figure out what to do with them. Because if you just let them sit there, they're a gigantic drag on your ROE and your ROA. And so you've got to figure out what to do with them. And in some sense, the history of the strategy, of the evolution of the strategy at Silicon Valley Bank is the history of three successive management teams, three successive CEOs, trying to figure out what to do with the excess deposits our, while we're simultaneously helping entrepreneurs succeed. So our first CEO, Roger Smith, and by the way, I, I, I have a soft spot in my heart for everybody that's ever worked at Silicon Valley Bank, and Roger is no exception, so I in no way intend to be making fun of anybody, my predecessors, but fortunately, I've gained from their mistakes. I've been here 18 years. I've seen all their mistakes. And what that has given me is the opportunity to, to um, develop new ones that have not been tried before. <laughs> so Roger Smith, our first CEO, sought to use up all those excess deposits by lending them to real estate developers. Somebody should start laughing at this point. <laughs> because I get, one thing, if, there, if there's one, two things that you can take away from this, one is if you can have no competition, you can be more successful, like I was telling you earlier. The other one is never lend to real estate developers. 
and I don't hope I'm not offending any of you, but real estate developers are, will eventually, they'll borrow and borrow and borrow, and eventually there'll come a day where they won't pay you back. And that's the history of commercial banking. Almost every bank that's gotten in major trouble in the United States has gotten in major trouble because they've rent, lent a bunch of money to real estate developers. It's not that they're not nice people. It's that they take all this money and they sink it into buildings. And then when the recession comes, and it inevitably comes, they're illiquid, and they can't pay you back. It's not that they don't want to, they just can't. So that's what happened to our first, in our first era. 1992 ro uh, rolled around, and uh, California real estate went into the doldrums, and all of a sudden, real estate developers couldn't pay us back. And we had our first, and if I'm not mistaken, only loss in our history in the third quarter of 1992. And then we had a sea change. And our second CEO, John Dean, came on board. And John spent the first two years or so kind of fixing things because of all this, the problems we had because of the bad real estate loans. And then he had to figure out, he was right where all of us are, he had to figure out what do you do with the excess deposits, all these deposits that have piled up. So his idea was, let's lend them to underserved niches. Now that should elicit a smile from somebody who's at least old enough to know that there's no such thing as an underserved niche. Um, because every single niche has been discovered. And if it's underserved, it's usually because it wasn't a good niche. So we discovered a bunch of underserved niches, and they almost dragged us under. Um, and I won't go into all of the underserved niches. We got ourselves in about 10, 15 of them. One of them was churches. <laughs> Another one was independent filmmakers. We managed to find 15 independently produced films that would not sell at the box office. <laughs> we didn't find a single one that sold at the box office. That's an underserved niche. <laughs> Fortunately for us, all of these problems with churches and independent filmmakers and so on occurred during the boom of 99 and 2000. And during that boom, we had such massive gains from our warrants. Warrants are um, opportunities to buy stock at a set low price. They're just like options. We had such massive gains from warrants that they more than compensated for our losses in these underserved niches. But then the boom busted, the recession ensued, the warrant gains disappeared, and we were left with these underserved niches. So my team, because I came out in 97 but didn't become CEO until 2001, I became CEO in April of 2001 when we officially recognized that the recession had begun. The first thing my team did was decide what we were going to do with the massive unused deposits. Because we didn't want to lend them to real estate developers, we didn't want to lend them to underserved niches, but we had to do something with them. So we got this brilliant idea, and in retrospect it's still sort of brilliant, and that is, we would, we, instead of letting people put these things on our balance sheet, 
we would open a broker-dealer. And we'd have two operations. We'd have our commercial bank, and we'd have our broker-dealer. And we would tell people, put some money on our balance sheet so you can pay your bills with your checking account. Take the rest of it and put it in the broker-dealer where we'll buy money market um, uh, instruments for you. And, you know, things like CDs and commercial paper and stuff like that. And everybody's better off because you'll get a higher rate of return in the broker-dealer and it'll be safer. It's always safer to lend money to General Motors than it is to give it to us and let us lend it to technology companies. Well, that was true once. Today, that's probably not true, but um, you get the idea. And then they would, we told them to put just enough on our balance sheet so they can pay their, their bills and their checking account, and it would be just enough for us to fund our loans so that we wouldn't have excess deposits on our balance sheet. And that has actually worked miraculously well. That broker-dealer is, is just fantastic. It now has, we're a $7 billion bank. The broker-dealer has $22 billion in it. And it makes a lot of money. It makes clients happy. It makes shareholders happy. It makes all of us at Silicon Valley Bank happy. So that was, that was a good idea, pretty much. I could get into you know, the, 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 the subtle ways in which it wasn't brilliant, but I'll save that. And that's the history of our strategy. Now I'd like to give you the four points of our strategy today, and then I'll move directly into culture. Once we'd made that decision, we made four or five other decisions. And they have formed the basis of our strategy ever since. The first decision was that we were going to focus exclusively on technology. We were going to drop everything having to do with real estate. We are going to drop everything having to do with underserved niches and focus exclusively on technology. So today we're the most focused bank in the country. 95% of everything we do involves technology companies or life sciences companies, or venture capital funds, or private equity firms. So that's all. The other 5%, by the way, is the only underserved niche we kept, and that was premium wine. And that's, that's a nice niche in some regards, but it's not a very profitable niche. It's, but it's small enough that nobody can be upset that we continue to pursue it. And many of the VCs uh, drink wine. <laughs> and, um, and many of the technology executives drink wine. So it has a little bit, but that argument's pretty flimsy because they also <laughs> drive BMWs and we're not trying to finance BMWs. Um, but we keep that um, and 95% of everything we do technology. So then that's decision number two. First one was a broker-dealer to use the excess deposits appropriately. The second one was focusing on technology. The third one was to expand our product set so that we can do anything for this world of venture-backed technology companies that would be useful to them, as long as they'll pay for it. They have to pay for it because in the end, the shareholders have to be happy. Um, that's number three. Number four is to keep companies longer. And I want to be really explicit here because it's still true that almost all of our new business development efforts are directed at tiny companies that are just getting started. Because what we want to do is bring these companies into our portfolio even pr prior to their obtaining um, venture capital. So we try to get to these companies and bring them in when it's really literally just a couple people and an idea or a business plan. 
but we try to keep them now as long as we can. Up until 2001, when they got to about 20, 25 million in sales, we would let them drift off to B of A or to Wells Fargo. And it was absolutely, first of all, it was kind of a necessity in that era because we didn't have enough products to keep them happy as they grew. But it was also a horrible idea because when companies are small and you're nursing them along and trying to help them, you feel very good about it because it's wonderful to help entrepreneurs succeed, but you don't earn very much money because they don't buy a lot because they're too small to buy much. And so what we were doing is nursing them along until they got just big enough to buy something. And then we'd let them go to B of A and Wells Fargo. And B of A and Wells Fargo would reap all the benefits of our hard work. And so we decided to keep them longer. Now we have companies up to a billion in sales, hundreds of companies. And they buy immense amounts of banking product. So that was part four. Part five was, is that we keep expanding our geographic scope ever further. We started again right here in Silicon Valley, then we went to Boston, then we went across the United States. Now we're in Shanghai, we're in Hangzhou, we're in Bangalore, we're in Mumbai, we're in London, and we're in Israel. And we're starting small. We've been there a couple years. We're doing some deals, not a huge number. We'll build on that. But this is a good thing because this is a global community in which we operate. And I can guarantee you if we don't follow our venture capital friends across the ocean into these markets, two things will happen. One is we'll miss the big opportunity. The other thing is somebody else will follow them. And if somebody else follows them, they may make friends with that other person and then that could follow its way backwards into the United States. It's a little bit like, you know, my wife likes going to the symphony. I don't. I could say, go find somebody else to go with you. <laughs> but I'm fearful that if I did that, pretty soon they'd, she'd be going out with them on Friday night and Sunday night, too, and not just on Saturday night. And I want to guard against that. So I'm willing to go to the symphony. And I am willing to go to India and China and Israel and the U.K. And besides that, I don't want to miss the opportunity because it's big. The fifth thing, the last thing we have done is the most mundane of all, and I won't spend much time on it. Um, it's a recent a discovery of mine, and that is that you can actually um, make more money by spending less. Now, we have never been focused on expenses. We've always been focused on revenues. But, but our, re our expenses have got, got a little bit um, out of hand. We grew them by a full 19% in 2006. And that's, that's, you know, in corporate terms, that's astronomical. So we figured out that you can actually make more money by spending less. And um, what we did was in 2006, because of Sarbanes-Oxley and because of all the increased accounting regulations and standards, we were actually paying $17,000 per employee to the big four. Isn't that amazing? That's the cost of compliance. That's a huge amount of money. That's the death knell for corporate America, in my view. Because we'll soon become a country that is good at compliance, and everybody else will be good at innovation. So we spent a lot of time in this last year um, kind of uh, trying to figure out how to save money. And we do it in three ways. One is we squeeze our vendors. We walk up to every accountant that we see, and we grab them by the belt and yank. 
until they turn purple and their wallet pops right out of their suit coat. And then we, uh, we also focus on uh, trying to do things that are less, let's see, that have less to do with a direct interface with clients. Outsourcing those things to people who can do them less expensively. And that has been a big boon for us. And then the other thing we have done is focused on taking the um, unnecessary steps out of business processes. And we found out that over the years, business processes expand without your being aware that they're doing it and in redundant ways. Because people just you know, add steps here, there, and everywhere, and pretty soon they forgot why they are doing them, but they keep doing them by rote. And so we've made a lot. We, our expenses last year by only 2% instead of 19% as we had the year before. Finally, I want to speak to culture. Because as important as strategy is, I believe that culture is the most important part of any organization. I believe that culture is what motivates. I believe that most people in most corporations in the United States are unhappy. That most people in most corporations in the United States, and this isn't just a belief, there have been studies done that would suggest that this is the case, they devote about half their brain to their job and the other half to thinking about how nice it would be if they worked someplace else. And eventually that opportunity comes. I think it's possible to have a culture that is both happy, meaning it's a nice place for people to work, and productive. It generates the kinds of returns that shareholders appreciate, and effective. It makes clients happy. And that's what we focus on here. And I'd like to try to describe briefly our culture, the keys uh, to our culture. The first one is whom we try to hire and whom we try to keep. Our, um, our approach to that is threefold. One is we try to hire intelligent people. I, I truly believe that Silicon Valley Bank is like, like Wobegon. Um, we're all above average at Silicon Valley Bank. Number two is we try to hire as diverse a set of people as we possibly can. The idea is if you have smart people and people with a wide range of experience, you've got a lot going for you. So we have over 50 first languages at Silicon Valley Bank. There are only 1,200 people. we got over 50 first languages. More than half the people at Silicon Valley Bank didn't ever work in a bank before coming to us. One of our most productive lenders, by way of example, was a concierge at the Four Seasons in Boston when I hired him. And, and he's, there have been various years when he's been the most productive revenue generator in the whole place. Our employees have interesting and diverse hobbies. And I could give you hundreds of stories, but I'll tell you one, and that is if you ever read National Geographic and you saw the tiger pictures, you know those pictures of tiger faces and tigers um, that were obviously done with telescopic lenses? That was probably done by Suresh Gundapa, who's a full-time employee at Silicon Valley Bank but spends his weekends in the jungle, literally photographing tigers for National Geographic. So we try to have smart people, we try to have people with a diverse range of experiences, and most importantly, we want to have people that can work as a team. People that know how to work together, because being smart and having a broad range of experiences is not enough. 
if everybody is an individual silo. Most of the problems that we face are complex and sophisticated. Complex and sophisticated problems can only be solved by teams. They can't typically be solved by individuals. Sometimes it's good to have a genius as a catalyst, but to put solutions into effect will still require the efforts of a team. So how do we get people who work together effectively? Well, first of all, it's tricky because it's hard to tell when you're interviewing somebody if they're going to be good on a team. But you do your best. And then if they don't work out, you ask them to go work someplace else. But you encourage people through the culture you create. And our culture has a couple of different aspects that I would mention. One of them is that we put a huge amount of emphasis on what we call the guiding principles. And without going into detail, the guiding principles, and we really believe this stuff, by the way, meaning every company has guiding principles. Very few of them talk about them and practice them and base their evaluations of other people on them, and we actually do. The, main guide, the guiding principles, although they're quite detailed, kind of break down into two sort of categories. One of them is being respectful of other people. And the other one is, if you have a problem, if I have a problem with Tom, I have an obligation to talk to Tom, not to the rest of you. Human nature is such, most people, when they have a problem with Tom, pick one of you as a third party and talk trash about Tom. Yeah. That's human nature. But we really insist that people work out problems together, face to face. Two other parts to this. One of them is that we use metaphors to describe what we're trying to accomplish. Our two biggest and most important metaphors are these. One is an orchestra. Silicon Valley Bank is like an orchestra. Everybody has an instrument to play. Every instrument is important. There are no superfluous instruments. Furthermore, when we all play at the same time and off the same piece of music, we produce beautiful music. But it requires that everybody plays and that they play simultaneously and that they play off the same sheet. Different parts, but the same sheet. And the other one, which I think captures the essence of what we're trying to accomplish is a boat with oars. We used to talk about lifeboats because I spent so many years in Cohasset, Massachusetts, which is on the ocean and they have lifeboats. And people get out there, it's a spiritual experience. They row together on Saturday and Sunday mornings. But um, people have discouraged me from using that because it implies something sinking. So we're now using one of these things. I believe they're called a skull. I never was in one. But those boats, you know, those long boats where people row. The idea is everybody has to have an oar. Everybody has to pull on their oar in unison. And in equal measure. And if you do that, the boat actually goes forward. If you don't, if some people aren't pulling or if they're pulling not in unison, the boat will go in circles. And we pride ourselves on 
all being on an oar and all pulling in unison. And as a result, last year, and this is something that we do frequently, last year in November, we were named the sixth best performing bank in the entire United States. Bear in mind there are 8,000 banks in the United States. So I don't think that's an accident. I think there's some good luck, but I also think that culture has a lot to do with it. And with that, I would open it up to questions. Sir? So on a day-to-day -day basis, how do you influence that culture? Like, how do you implement the vision? <clears throat> on a day-to-day -day basis, that's a big question. Um, I'll give you two quick answers to it. One would be, today I was in Salt Lake. Tomorrow I'll be in Denver. Um, one of the things I do on a regular basis is I visit every single office um, in our system, and I get in front of every single employee. Um, every single employee um, is subjected to me <laughs> at least once a year, if not more often, and we talk about those things. So that creates a level of awareness. But number two is we have something we call unit evaluation, meaning if, um, if you were at Silicon Valley Bank and you reported to me, I alone could not evaluate you. Um, because the fear is that I would either think too highly of you or not highly enough of you, and that I wouldn't necessarily feel compelled to apply the guiding principles to the evaluation process. So we actually evaluate people in groups. Everybody that reports to me or to any other manager is evaluated by a group of people. And the, the people in the group that are doing the evaluating are, are peers of the evaluator. But they, in turn, get feedback from their direct reports, who would be peers of the evaluatee. So that's how we do it. Thank you. Good question. Any other question? Yes, sir. Did I personally? The bank. That's a darn good question. I'm glad you brought that up. We actually have our own venture fund. We have a number of venture funds. We have a family of funds. Um, and our family is, we have over a billion under management today. And the, um, our goal is to continue growing that. Um, I would say about half of it is in fund of funds meaning we go out and we raise money from limited partners, and then we put it into the best funds that we possibly can. And we have better access than most people would because of our relationships. Um, then there's a, about half of the other, so that would be half of the total. A quarter of the total would be in debt funds, um, meaning uh, venture debt funds that are providing leverage we do that on our own balance sheet, of course, but this gives us an extra um, uh, set of firepower. And then the final quarter of it, in rough terms, would be our own venture funds, um, where we deal primarily in Series A, because we have um, better access than most people do to um, Series A. Because um, we conceptually have the biggest sales force in the world calling on Series A companies. Good question. Thank you. Any others? Yes, sir. Uh, what other markets are considering for international expansion? At the moment, none, um, with the possible exception of Canada. But I don't think that that 
that's not a make it or break it kind of a market. As you know, I, at least I infer based on your question, there are other emerging markets globally. Vietnam would be a good example. Parts of Eastern Europe would be another good example. Um, but we're, we are reluctant to bite off more than we can chew. So we're doing the best we can with the resources we have at our disposal. And we seek simply to be, remain aware of developments in these other newer emerging technology markets. Other questions? Yes. So there's a number of people in the audience that either are entrepreneurs or are interested in being, starting their own company at some point in the future. Uh huh. Um, what's your recommendation for when they should come talk to you? <laughs> um, I would say that you are welcome. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Kimber. Kimber's question was, we have a number of entrepreneurs in the audience, and there are people in the audience who know entrepreneurs, I'm sure. When would, um, when would be, what would be my recommendation on when's the best time to talk with us? And I would say as soon as you're serious, if you're serious, um, if, and I don't mean to imply you're not serious, but as soon as you know, it starts to look like it's real, or even before, please come talk to us. We've got people that are anxious to talk to entrepreneurs and, and help them along the way and give them whatever guidance we possibly can. <coughs> and um, so we're, we've got people that are dedicated to that, that activity. It would not be uh, an inconvenience by any stretch. Thank you. Yeah. Can you go a little bit as to the services you guys offer to these uh, smaller engineering companies? Sure. Absolutely. Um, uh, first of all, we have a complete array of, of, of financial services. So all the things that companies would, could get potentially in other places, um, uh, we would offer as well. And then in addition to that, we arguably know more people um, than anybody, any other single entity in the, in the ecosystem in which we operate. And so we, we are outstanding at helping people find other people who can help them. And we also help people find capital. And we also give a huge amount of advice, particularly when it comes to you know, questions of, of uh, company formation as well as penetrating foreign markets. Ken, actually, yes. a lot of uh, first-time entrepreneurs don't even know what a commercial bank would do for a, a new business starting out. So rather than say, we do what anyone else would, could you enumerate the kinds of things that a commercial banker will do oh, for absolutely. a startup? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the question. sure. The question is, could I be more specific? <laughs> and the answer to that is, yes, I could. Um, if you were starting a company, first of all, there, um, you need a number of different service providers um, because there are all sorts of things that um, other people can do more effectively for you than you can do. This is like Maslow's hierarchy of needs, sort of, except in the world of venture-backed companies. Or you want to work your way up the triangle. You want to be, uh, uh, you want to be uh, engaged in the highest order activity, and you want to leave uh, things to others that are not um, unique to your own area of expertise. And so, um, first of all, we can find any service provider for you that you're looking for. Um, we can help introduce you to anybody that you're going to need. You're going to need an attorney, obviously. You're going to need um, uh, bookkeeping assistance initially and accounting assistance eventually. You're going to need a method of payment because you're going to have to pay your employees, plus eventually you're going to have to pay vendors. At some point, 
if you're serious about growing a company of any size, you're going to need capital. Um, and capital has two forms, equity capital and debt capital. The difference between the two, of course, is that equity capital is, capital is like gambling. And they're giving it to you on a gamble, and you don't have to pay it back, although they'd like it. Um, and debt capital is like renting. That's what we do, primarily. Um, we lend you money, but we expect to get it back in good condition eventually. And that's the difference, but we can help you with both types of capital. Capital is necessary to growing your company. And those would be the initial things that you would be looking for from somebody like us. That along with um, any and all advice. I will tell you that there's a, there's a, a major difference um, between our organization and for all practical purposes, the other 8,000 banks. And that is, um, maybe it's a good place to end because um, it, it kind of gets at the crux of why we exist. All lenders, because debt is, is our primary product, all lenders, regardless of whether they're in our arena or in any other arena, whether they're in the United States or in any other country, need two sources of repayment. The first one is, has got to be pretty certain. And the second one, which is the fallback mechanism, has to be dead certain. And the reason for that is that lenders are only renting the money. They're not gambling with it, and they have to get it back because they got it from the depositors after all. And the depositors would be pretty annoyed if they couldn't get their, their deposits back. If you went to your bank one day and wanted to withdraw some money and B of A said, well, we're sorry, we can't give it to you because we gambled with it and it's all gone, you'd be pretty annoyed. And that's how banks operate. They have to, they have to give the money back to the depositors, so they got to get it back. So all we do is, all banks do is rent money. Therefore, they have to have two sources of repayment. If you ever got a mortgage, at least prior to the insanity of the past couple of years, you know that all mortgages are the most representative form of lending because there's two sources of repayment. The first one is your salary. Up until recently, they wanted to know your salary. The second one is the house itself. The notion was your salary was the first source of repayment. It was pretty certain, but not absolutely certain. The second source of repayment, if the salary failed, was the house. Always two sources of repayment. Now, no matter where you go in the world, no matter which lender you talk to, any bank in the entire universe will tell you that the first source of repayment is always cash flow. That's just written in stone. And what I find so amusing about banks is that they put on these elaborate training programs for um, apprentice lenders, and um, they put them through months and months and months and months of training and at the end of all the training the only thing they learned was that they have to have two sources of repayment and that the first one is cash flow and that the second one is saleable assets or in other words collateral and collateral means stuff that the banker can take and sell like receivables or inventory or equipment now the problem a large part of our lending is to development stage companies Development stage companies are companies that are building a product, they don't have one yet. 
The problem with development stage companies from a lending point of view is they have no positive cash flow. Their cash flow is negative by definition because all they're doing is getting money from venture capitalists and then spending it and then getting more and spending it. And they have no collateral because if they do happen to have equipment, it's generally computer equipment, which is obsolete within about 10 minutes of purchase. <laughs> or they typically don't have inventory, but if they had inventory, God help anybody who wanted to sell it if the company itself couldn't sell it. <laughs> and receivables are worthless because if the company fails, the receivables will disappear. No account debtor, no customer is going to pay on a receivable to a defunct company in technology. They might if it were they were buying sugar or you know, some product like that, but if it's technology, why would you pay for... If you bought a computer on credit and the computer company disappeared, why would you pay? You'd just say, I'm not paying. You'd claim the computer didn't work. Because you wouldn't want to pay money for something that couldn't get serviced in the future. And we know computers need servicing, don't they? All technology um, products need servicing. So we're stuck with all these companies, development stage companies, that don't have a first source of repayment and don't have a second source of repayment. And that's the magic of what we do. <laughs> so if I told you how we did it, it'd be a violation of the copyright, wouldn't it? Until I can't tell you. I'm kidding. It's not that tough. But that's what makes us different from uh, any other organization. It's exactly 530. I'm told that we quit at exactly 530. Thank you very much. Thank you.